Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. And joining us on this episode is plastic surgeon Dr. Anthony Yoon, whom you may know from his appearances on TV programs like The Rachel Ray Show, The Dr. Oz Show, and The Doctors. Dr. Yoon is the host of his own podcast, The Holistic Plastic Surgery Show, and the author of the book, Playing God, The Evolution of a Modern Surgeon. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Take us back a few years and and tell us why you decided to enter the field of medicine in the first place. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, what, the day I was born, my parents decided that I was going to be a doctor. Um, <laughs> and I, I think this is the case for a lot of Asian Americans. Uh, my dad grew up on a rice farm in Korea and he became a physician and basically pulled his family out of poverty and lived the American dream. And so for him and for my mom, really what they knew coming to the U.S. was that doctor equals success. And so that's what they decided I was going to be. And you say that you felt like an outsider growing up. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and how plastic surgery played a role in your own life. Yeah, so I grew up in in the only Asian family, really the only non-white family in a tiny town in the middle of Michigan. and. Really, it was in addition to being the only Asian family there, uh, when I was younger and I was in high school, my jaw began to grow to enormous proportions, the point where my jaw was bigger than Jay Leno's jaw. And I ended up, I mean, it really affected my self-esteem, my self-image. I hated looking at pictures of myself and I felt invisible at times to to other people. So I ended up having surgery on my jaw. It was orthognathic, basically like a plastic and reconstructive surgery on my jaw after high school, set my jaw back. And it really taught me just how changing your appearance and really feeling how really feeling good about how you look can profoundly impact your life and your outlook on life. And how did that play a role in what you decided to do, you know, the field you decided to specialize in as far as medicine is concerned? Did did that make it so that there was no other aspect of medicine that you would have even considered? Because you were so profoundly affected by plastic surgery in your own life? Yeah, actually, it, it didn't so much at the time because I was still a bit on the younger side. Um, really, everything came together. There was an event that happened. Uh, I was in medical school. I was on my pediatrics rotation. And we were called. I was there one night. We were called to this emergency and ran down to see this emergency as a medical student. And it was this little child who had her face eaten by a raccoon. It was an absolutely horrifying, um, horrifying experience to see this little girl. And the plastic surgeon, after the girl was stabilized, the plastic surgeon came in and and took the time to discuss with me just how this child was going to get reconstructed. And this combined with some other earlier experiences, uh, seeing what plastic surgery was like. Now, this was back in the early 2000s, before you had it all over TV and everything that you have now. Um, it really opened my eyes to this this interesting field. And when you combine a lot of what I saw there with this poor girl and, and just the hope that plastic surgeons can bring to help reconstruct her face and, and hopefully give her a quote-unquote normal life, combined with my experiences, that really combined to hook me into this field. And what do you say to critics of plastic surgery? Well, I mean, I, I think that there's so much out there right now. A lot of it's our own fault. You know, there's so many doctors out there performing cosmetic procedures in ways that I think are unethical, that they're immoral. 
Um, you know, when I trained, and I trained with a lot of great plastic surgeons, um, but in surgery, there is this saying, to cut is to cure. And the only way to heal is with cold steel. And unfortunately, in, in my field of plastic surgery, there's, there's so much money that can be made operating on people mm-hmm. that doctors are taking what are really serious operations. They're making light of it. They're trying to convince people they have things done. And that really has cast a pall on what really is something, you know, that is a, an art and a practice and a way to help people out. And so, you know, I coined this term holistic plastic surgery, which kind of sounds like a bit of a misnomer, like it doesn't really, how does that make sense? Uh, it's something to strive for as cutting last, really, and because there's so much that we can do to look our best and feel our best from eating the right food to clean skincare to the wide plethora of non-invasive and minimally invasive options to help people to look and feel better about themselves. I mean, surgery should always be used as a last resort. Uh, and that's this whole idea, you know, in my new book, this idea of a modern surgeon. It's not the cut first surgeon, but it's the surgeon that partners with patients to really help that patient do what's best for himself or herself. And we mentioned that the title of your new book is Playing God, the Evolution of a Modern Surgeon. So I'm wondering how your hopes and your dreams and your ideas about being a plastic surgeon have changed over the course of your career. Yeah, you know, there was a... Um, a couple of moments, and, and some of these are, are in the book, Playing God, that really impacted me. Um, you know, the whole title, Playing God, is something that I've had some blowback with because some people think, oh, you think you're playing God? That's why you called it that. And in the end, it's actually the opposite. I had this patient who came to see me one day. Uh, I, was, um, I was fairly early in my practice, and I really thought that I was doing, you know, pretty well. And I had this patient come in to see me, and um, she had had botched surgery on her tummy. And she walked, she came in with a cane and she said, look, Dr. Yun, I've been turned down by 15 other plastic surgeons. You're my last hope. Will you please help me? So I said, well, what can I, you know, what's going on? What can I do for you? And she said, I had a tummy tuck by another doctor. I lost all this weight and I had this surgery and everything fell apart. I developed a flesh eating bacteria. I almost died. And I had multiple operations with skin grafts and all of this stuff. And now my tummy is this scarred up, painful mess. And she said, I can't, I can't really do hardly anything. I'm disabled. My husband won't look at me anymore. And she said, you know, the worst part of it is the only thing that I really want to do is play with my granddaughter. And I can't do that. And so she had tears in her eyes. And she said, will you please help me? You're my last hope. So I looked at her chart. I looked at all of her medical information. And I tell you, she was a medical nightmare. She had diabetes. She had stents from heart attacks. She was on blood thinners. Anything that you could think of, she had it. And that's why all these doctors turned her down. But I had this feeling inside my gut and inside my heart that I need to help this person. And I had this sense of peace that we were going to be okay. So I said, look, no guarantees. I said, you could die from the surgery. Do you really want to do this? And she said, yes, because my life is basically over anyway. So a few weeks later, I brought her to surgery. And the night before surgery, I prayed for her and I prayed that God would basically help me help her because I knew that I really couldn't do this by myself. And the surgery went perfectly. I literally felt like my hands were being guided. Everything went as absolutely smoothly as possible. And three weeks or not, maybe six weeks actually after her operation, she came to see me in my office, no cane, holding a carrot cake that she baked for me. 
And she knew that her insurance turned her down for the operation. They considered it cosmetic, which obviously was not. Mm -hmm. And she said, Dr. Jean, will you please take this? She goes, I don't have any money. Will you take this as payment in full for this operation? And I said, well, of course I will. And then she, she said, you know what? She said, this is a, I need to tell you something. I said, well, what is that? She said, for the first time in a year last night, I played with my granddaughter. And she started to cry. And she said, Dr. Yoon, why did you do it? And I said, well, do what? And she said, why did you operate on me when nobody else would take the chance? And I told her, I said, look, I knew that there was somebody watching out for us. And I knew that this was the right thing to do. And no matter what happened, I was doing the right thing. And then she said something. This is where my part of the title of my book came about. She said, you know what? Other doctors, they say and they think that they're playing God, but not you. Why is that? And I said, because I'm, I don't, I'm not God. I can't play God. I need God to help me because otherwise I couldn't help people like you. Right. And that's this whole idea of playing God and, and really what that meant. And these other doctors who turned her down probably had the same fears that a lot of doctors would have had in terms yeah. of the fear of maybe being sued. And I'm wondering how, as a doctor, you deal with fears like that. How did you get yourself to get over that? And what would the consequences be if that were to happen? So, you know, that's a big part of the book, too. My dad, he actually was an OBGYN and, and he took so much pride in his practice and the fact that he had birthed thousands of babies, the whole town, basically, he birthed. And, he's, and he would always tell me how proud he was that he's never been sued. You know, I've birthed 5,000 babies. I've never been sued. And he ended up announcing he was going to retire. And boom, 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 out of the woodwork, three lawsuits. Oh, my just like God. That. Because, because they knew that if he's retiring, he must have a nest egg. And all three of these lawsuits were ridiculous. They had no merit to them. But it completely broke him. And, uh, and that was something when, that happened when I was early on in my training. And it really affected me because I saw how this proud man who, you know, really brought his whole family out of poverty from Korea, lived the American dream and had such pride in how he treated patients. And he used, he used to always tell me, he said, Tony, because you know, I say, well, what happened? You know, I, I always worry, you know, what if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not a good enough doctor? What if I get sued? What if my patients have horrible complications? And he always said, just do your best. Whatever it comes down to, always take good care of your patients and you're going to be fine. Uh, and this happened and it completely broke his heart. So I tell you, yeah, I mean, I'm, I've been in practice now for 15 years. Uh, knock on wood, I've never been sued, which is odd for a plastic surgeon. I mean, the average plastic surgeon gets sued every three or four years. Wow. Um, I'm surprised it's but, not even more. Yeah. Yeah, for some places it's every two years, and uh, it's pretty. It's a. It's I, the way I have to look at it is it's it's the cost of doing business, the cost of taking care of patients. That at some point somebody's going to sue me, and uh, and it's going to you know be a very difficult situation. But you have to be ready for it because no matter how well you practice medicine, no matter how much you care for your patients, bad stuff happens, and and you can't control it. And when bad things happen, sometimes people have to find somebody to blame. Uh, and in the end, you know, that's why, once again, we get back to that whole idea of holistic plastic surgery, of using surgery as a last resort and only using it when you absolutely need it. This episode is sponsored by Ritual, and we're excited to tell you about Ritual's essential protein products. In just a minute, we'll tell you about Ritual's special offer for Nobody Told Me listeners. You know, the fact is we all need protein. It's not just about muscles. 
Protein helps support bone health and so much more. But protein powders can be intimidating. Plus, as we go through life, our protein needs change. So it's important to choose a mix for different life stages. Ritual's Essential Protein is a delicious plant-based protein powder with three distinct formulas designed to meet the body's changing protein needs during different stages of life. There's Daily Shake 18+, Daily Shake 50+, and Daily Shake Pregnancy and postpartum. Each of these three thoughtful formulas contains 20 grams of pea protein per serving. Ritual's Essential Protein Powder is a good foundation for your health that's easy to incorporate into your daily rituals. I just add water, shake, and sip, and I love the great taste. Me too. It's a delicious handcrafted vanilla flavor from sustainably harvested Madagascar vanilla bean extract. There's no added sugar or sugar alcohols. It's soy-free, gluten-free, and non GMO. You may have heard us talk about Ritual's products over the years. We're big fans and really appreciate that with Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain, you know the what, how, and why of every labeled ingredient. Ritual offers a super flexible subscription service with free shipping for subscribers, free easy cancellation, and a money-back guarantee within the trial period. Ready to shake up your protein ritual? Our Nobody Told Me listeners get 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash ntm ritual even offers a money-back guarantee if you're not 100 in love visit ritual.com slash ntm today for 10 off your first three months again that's ritual.com slash ntm for 10 off your first three months what do you say to people when they ask what they can expect from a plastic surgery procedure i mean how do you how do you get them to have realistic expectations? Because I would imagine some patients come to you thinking that you are playing God, that you can just immediately fix everything and, and make them look perfect or make them look 25 years younger. Yeah, well, I turn down one out of every five or six people that come to see me uh, because there is uh, so much out there, misinformation. And, and there are people who have real psychological issues. Um, you know, in the population, 1% of the population has biodysmorphia, where you, when you look in the mirror, you see something different than what everybody else sees. Uh-huh. You know, and that's what I believe like Michael Jackson had. If you see these celebrities in Hollywood who had just way too much plastic surgery, mm-hmm. a lot of them probably are suffering from biodysmorphia. Whereas the 1% of the population suffers from it, but in plastic surgery, 10% of plastic surgery patients have it. And in certain types of operations, like for, for example, nose jobs, I would guess that upwards of 30% of patients have some type of body dysmorphia. Um, And so it really is a situation where you are part psychologist and part surgeon. Um, And I tell you, you know, what I've been seeing a lot, which has been really disturbing, is a massive influx of absolutely beautiful 20-something-year-old women and men coming in who are profoundly unhappy with their appearance. Uh, And I think social media has a lot to do with this. And they think that getting work done is going to make them happy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it just isn't. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you about that. And I I know so many of my friends in their 20s that just feel like they're not as beautiful as other people when you just want to tell them in reality that so many photos on social media are just completely photoshopped. And it's so easy to get these apps that make you look so different. And it's not a realistic picture and that they are really beautiful as they are. How do you see this problem resolving over the years, or do you? 
Um, I think it's education. And, you know, just for example, there was a study that was published recently that showed if you take a selfie, so you take your phone and you have your phone about 12 inches away from your face, you take a picture that way, your nose looks about 20 to 30 percent larger than it does in real life. Wow. Okay. Uh huh. So uh-huh. actually taking a selfie versus taking a picture from five feet away, your nose is larger in the selfie, significantly larger. But people don't know this. And so they take these pictures. And how many people are you seeing out at coffee shops and restaurants taking selfies of themselves? And, and they're altering it and, and filtering it. I, I really think that it's become this epidemic where we are now so obsessed with our appearance and trying to look perfect and presenting this perfect appearance that it is a I mean, it's a danger, especially for the young people, the teenagers nowadays who, you know, may not be our ages where, you know, we've been through this stuff. We we have our own sense of self, our sense of self-image. But imagine if you are a 14 year old boy or girl right now who are, who's just developing your sense of self, your body is changing you're seeing all these images on Instagram of your quote unquote friends that are Photoshopped, but you don't know that they are looking perfect. How difficult is it to, to be that person now? It's so difficult. So, you know, I think that it's education and part of it is, I think, shielding our children from these effects of social media for as long as we can mm-hmm. well, <laughs> until they hopefully have that develop that sense of self. You know, I have another question then along those lines, because you're a plastic surgeon and a father, what message would you have to parents of teenagers who are struggling with with their looks and and Mm -hmm. struggling with the images they see their friends are posting on social media, which, like Laura was saying, may be very doctored uh, to begin with. Probably are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) No, I think that just like I said earlier, I think it's education. It's letting them know that that these are not real pictures. These are basically the same thing as paintings. You you might as well paint a picture of yourself, for God's sakes. But Mm -hmm. I also think it's so important that so many, you know, I've got children and and my kids are not on social media yet, but I know a lot of their friends are. And I think the parents a lot of times encourage this behavior of like, hey, yeah, let's do Snapchat. Let's do TikTok. Let's do Instagram together. And and they're encouraging their kids to do it, which makes absolutely no sense. I think it's horrible parenting, unfortunately, but it's not that I, I think it's just they don't know. And I think this is what we have to educate parents about is that there are actual studies that look at children who are on social media and especially children who are taking selfies. And they have a much higher risk of having poor self-image than those kids who are not on social media. I want to go back a little bit in your story to a time you were very open about in your book about you experiencing medical school and how it was filled with so many struggles for you. What were those struggles? And looking back at it, do you think it was worth all of the struggles to get to where you are today? Yeah, you know, there you learn so much and uh, and there's so much growth. And so I've written two books about it in Stitches was my first one. And then The Playing God is my second one. And I think what it really is, is that you have to go through this to become the doctor that you are. So I give you an example. There was a story in my book of one where I, I still remember, you know, there's a handful of patients that all doctors remember through their life. And these are occasionally the ones that you've just had this huge success with. But a lot of times it's people that you failed. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my, my book, Playing God, there's, I tell the story of this patient uh, who was a young man who I was working in the burn unit as a resident. And he was in this explosion and he had had 98% of his body was burned, came into the burn unit. I was a doctor that was on call there. 
So I was covering things until the attending surgeon, basically my boss, came in. So this guy comes in, 98% of burned. Basically, he was burned over everything but his genitalia and his face. And he was awake. We were taking care of him. And I knew that the percentages, when you look at it, somebody burned that much over their body, they're going to Um, they're unlikely to survive right? and unlikely to survive more than a day or two. Uh So the guy was awake, um, but he was in severe pain. His wife and his daughter were in the waiting room. They hadn't seen him yet. I was about to, we were getting all of his wounds dressed. And, and I knew that with within a period of time, he was probably going to be unable to breathe on his own without a ventilator because he had, he developed smoke inhalation. He had so much damage to his lungs and to his chest that most likely we're going to need to put him on a ventilator to try to save his life. So I was about to call the wife and daughter in to say, you know, to see him before we put him to sleep, basically put him on the ventilator. When mm-hmm. the attending surgeon came in, took over and basically said, all right, let's put him on the ventilator now. And so I, I went over to him. I said, well, excuse me. And I was a lowly resident, you know, I was like the peon and he mm-hmm. was the big boss. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, do you think maybe we can have his wife and daughter come in? Because he's probably not going to ever wake up from this. You and I both know that he's probably not going to survive. He thought about it for a second and he said, no, Tony, you know, we need to give them hope. So this is not the time to bring them in. We can bring them in after he's asleep. So me, the dutiful Asian American young doctor stepped back and said, okay, you know, I'm not, I'm taught not to question authority. And he puts him asleep, puts him on the ventilator. And then the family comes in, the wife and the daughter come in and they're crying. They see the state that he's in. And the last image I have him before I had to leave for that night was him in the bed with the wife and the daughter standing or sitting by his side, just sobbing. And I left that night and I couldn't sleep that night. I had to come back the next morning. I couldn't sleep because I thought maybe I should have done something more. You know, I, I should have really pushed it and said, no, you know, this may be the last chance this father has has a chance to say he loves I love you to his daughter. This Mm -hmm. may be the last time he can say this to his wife and the last time that they can tell him this. And I didn't do any, you know, I didn't push that. So I come in the next morning and his, his room is empty. He had died a few hours after I'd left. And I just went up to the door. I remember I I went up to the wall and I just punched the wall because I was so upset and disappointed in myself that I, I let him down. Like I failed him. And I failed his wife and I failed his daughter because I didn't stick up for them and what I thought was right. And this was a lesson for me that even though I'm not, I wasn't at the time the boss or whatever, that I really need to be that person that does whatever is best for my patient, whether somebody gets upset by it or not. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so like, these are the types of lessons. They're painful. And, and I still think about this guy to this day and I regret it and I beat myself up over it. But you have to do this if you're going to become a good doctor. Tell us more about the role that faith has played in making you a better surgeon. Well, it is something that, you know, once again, the whole idea of playing God, we're taught that, that our skills are the absolute pinnacle of everything. And, and yes, that's a, you know, that is so incredibly important. And the training that you get is so incredibly important. But at the end, like I said earlier, there is so much that's outside of your control. And for me, there's so much that, you know, every day when I operate on somebody, there's, it's interesting because there's some surgeons when they operate on people, they, they love being in the operating room. Like this is where they want to be. They'd rather be there than be at home with their family. I hate being in the operating room. Honestly, like, yes, I'm a surgeon and I hate being in the operating room because I know the bad stuff that can happen. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm 
constantly is on my mind is making sure that my patient gets through this operation and does well afterwards because I know that bad things happen that people die in the OR. And so I think, you know, you can't rely just on your skills because in the end, there's so much that's outside of your control. And even if I do this operation perfectly, that person can still die because of things outside of my control. And that's where you really do need faith and faith that you're doing the right thing. And, and in the end, you know, every time I operate on somebody, I ask myself, you know, is this the right thing to do for this patient? You know, is it better for them not to have surgery, especially in my field where almost everything we do is elective, you know? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, there's a better way, then of course I'm not going to operate. I think most of my colleagues are that way, but I know that's unfortunately not the case everywhere and with everybody. What advice would you have for somebody who is looking at undergoing a cosmetic procedure? Well, the first thing is make sure you know exactly what you're having done and why. Okay. So for example, there are doctors who will convince you, hey, do this, do that, do this, because maybe they've got a laser that they need to pay off and they need to make money off of it. Maybe they mm-hmm. don't have a patient that, that's on the operative schedule for next week. So they're going to want to convince you to take that spot. So make sure that whatever you're having done is truly the right thing for you. If somebody asks you, why are you having a facelift? You can answer them. I'm having a facelift because I want to lift my neck and this and that. Know what the complications are. You need to know the surgery inside and out of what it entails for you. The second thing is, is make sure that the doctor that you see is a real board-certified plastic surgeon. There's so many doctors out there. This is a wild west in medicine, this plastic surgery. There's so many doctors performing cosmetic procedures that are woefully trained for it. I tell you that I'm a board-certified plastic surgeon, but if I convinced either of you to come to my office OR and let me perform a hysterectomy on you, I could do that legally, and there's absolutely no malpractice about it. Wow. Because as long as you sign on the dotted line, there's no law that a doctor cannot perform a surgery that they don't have formal training in. It's crazy. And because of that, you've got ER doctors, you've got OBGYNs, you've got uh, ENT doctors putting in breast implants, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. ER docs doing facelifts. Like, it is truly the Wild West of medicine today. What are some of the cosmetic procedures that tend to get the best results? And what are some of them that are a little bit trickier to do and, and maybe don't have the, the optimal results? So, you know, for somebody who's thinking of looking younger, there are some real simple things that you can do that I think are fantastic. IPL, intense pulse light. It's like a laser um, and it targets dark spots, pigment. So a great way to get rid of age spots and, and very, very safe. Botox, you know, Botox is the number one most popular cosmetic treatment in the history of the world. And it is very, very safe if it's done appropriately by a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon. And people get addicted to it because it works so well. On the flip side, there are certain operations that you really want to avoid. Um, There's been a lot of news lately about the Brazilian butt lift. This is injections of fat into the buttocks to make the buttocks bigger. We used to think it was a very safe operation, a good alternative to buttock implants. But what we're finding out now is that it has the highest mortality rate in all of plastic surgery. One in 3,000 people who undergo the BBL, the buttock fat grafting, will die from the operation. And they're typically young women, often young women of color. So it's very, very disturbing. Why? The other thing, um, it's because when you're injecting fat into the buttocks, the buttocks have very, very large blood vessels, specifically the veins. And what we think is that even if you're injecting fat, um, 
not necessarily into the actual blood vessel. If you inject it into the muscle uh, that surrounds those blood vessels and you inject a lot of it because the person wants a big rear end, the pressure of that fat can actually seep through little micro tears in the blood vessels, go into the bloodstream, and that fat as it's in the bloodstream can literally act like the missiles from an X-wing fighter on the Death Star. Okay, you get that fat, that little globule of fat that lodges inside your lungs, and people die within minutes from it. It literally is like the Death Star. And, and I've seen, I had this horrible situation when I was a resident. It didn't have anything to do with plastic surgery. A young woman who was just walking down the street and literally keeled over and pretty much died just from a blood clot. I mean, it's, it, people die so quickly from that type of thing. You don't have time often to try to save them. Uh, and this is that operation that you've really got to watch out for. Have you ever regretted performing plastic surgery on someone? I have. There's actually a story from Playing God where, this, where I tell in great detail of this woman who I performed a facelift on and eyelid surgery. Um, I didn't know that she had biodysmorphia. I performed this operation. She looked great afterwards, but I thought she looked great. Everybody else thought she looked great, but she thought she looked hideous. And she ended up, um, uh, I mean, literally almost physically assaulting me. She tried to extort a million dollars from me, which I had, I didn't even, I was in negative digits at the time. My <laughs> was in the red because I just started my practice. Uh-huh. And she threatened to hit me with her car. She tried to extort a extort million dollars from me, which I like I had no money. Then she dropped it down to $150,000. And then she dropped that down to carte blanche, any surgery that she wanted me to perform on her for three years. I was forced to perform on her. Wow. So, yeah, it was crazy. She was running around my office screaming at me. uh, And I just started my practice. I had no idea how to deal with this. Uh, And, yeah, that was a patient I regretted. There's so much more to the story. I know that we don't have a ton of time left on your show. But um, suffice it to say, um, I I wasn't very choosy, I think, with uh, operating her. I didn't know that she had biodysmorphia. And the poor woman... Um, I mean, thought that I botched her and I was, and it really, it killed me for all over a year after that, I thought I was the worst doctor in the world. Um, and, and it really, it, it took a year for me to figure out that this wasn't my fault, that it was that she has a psychiatric condition, that what she sees in the mirror was different than everybody else. And she took it out on me. Wow. Wow. And at the end of our show, we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? And you clearly have a lot of really interesting ones. So we're curious to know what you're going to say for this. What do you wish someone had told you when you were just starting out as a doctor or when you were in medical school that would have saved you from some very tough lessons that you had to learn over the years? Yeah, I would say nobody told me that not all of your patients are going to love you. And it took me a long time to deal with the fact that patients are going to have sometimes not the best outcomes and they're going to blame it on you. And that's okay, you know, and I have patients even now, I think that the vast majority of my patients are really, really happy, but every once in a while you have somebody that you just can't make happy. Um, They may get an infection, they may get a complication, and even if you do your best, you can't make everybody happy. And that's okay, as long as inside you know you're doing the best you can, and everything that you do, you look back and say, did I do the best I could for this patient in the best way that I know how? And as long as the answer is yes to that, then it's going to be fine. Uh, and uh, and and, I, and it was many many years of beating myself up over me failing people, or I thought that I failed people, 
Um, and it took me a while to really come to grips with the fact that, you know what, you're doing the best you can and it's okay. You know, be proud that you're, that you're doing the best you can. Doctor, how can people connect with you on social media and online? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. So at Tony Yoon, uh, MD, um, I've got uh, a website where we give out uh, free eBooks. So people who are interested in 10 things, every plastic surgery patient must know, uh, dryoon.com. Uh, we just head over there and we'll give you this free ebook. And then I've got my podcast, the holistic plastic surgery show where we cover all different ways to look and feel your best, um, from gut health to skin health, to the types of foods to eat to plastic surgery. We cover it all. Wow. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. This has been fabulous. We really have gotten a lot of some great stories and just really good advice. You've been awesome to listen to. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Again, our thanks to Dr. Anthony Yoon, host of the podcast, The Holistic Plastic Surgery Show, and the author of the new book, Playing God, The Evolution of a Modern Surgeon. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.